Hey, my name's Caleb, and I'm the pastor at Cross of Life, and we're so thankful that you clicked on this video. We really pray that it benefits you, it grows your faith, or maybe introduces you to Jesus in a way that you've never been introduced before. But what we also want for you is to be connected to a local congregation. So if Cross of Life is your home congregation, we're glad that you make use of these resources, but make sure that this never comes in the place of coming together for worship with the body of believers. Let's be a church that values in-person gathering when so much of life is digital. And if you're somebody who's not from Mississauga, uh, get in touch with the local church in your area. It can be so easy to pick and choose, oh, I like this preacher or I like this message, but never actually invest in the place that Jesus says that he is, in his body, the church. And we encourage you to take time to put yourself into his body, in a local congregation, so that you can pray for one another, love one another, support one another, forgive one another, do all the things that the scripture talks about for one another. So we hope you're blessed by this video, and we hope that we get the chance to see you in person sometime soon. The text we're studying is Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses. I'll read it for us. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the gospel of the Lord, or excuse me, this is the word of the Lord. Um, the book of Acts is the account of the early Christian church. So it's the first couple decades after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, and it recounts what this fledgling little church was like as it was growing. And the church has historically studied the book of Acts after Easter because, well, the events of Acts come after Easter. And we are also doing that in the same style as we have been studying the book of Luke for the last couple of years, just picking up where we've left off every year. Last year, we got through chapter four of Acts. This year, we're picking up at chapter five with the text that I just read for you. Um, and before we get into the text, I think it's important for us to remember the context, right? To remember what has been happening up to this point at chapter five, since we haven't studied it since last year. The book of Acts starts with Jesus ascending into heaven and sending out his church, which uh, kind of has its sort of coming out party, if you will, at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples and they are able to speak in languages that they previously did not know in order to communicate with the people from all over the world who had come to Jerusalem for the festival. 3,000 people were added to their number that day, and that number continued to grow day after day, the Bible tells us. The church was blowing up in a really good way. Chapter 2 and chapter 4 tell us about how the church lived in community with one another, generously sharing what they had, in fact, even selling property in order to pay for the needs of the poor. 
Everything was going swimmingly for the early Christian church until chapter five when there's this bucket of cold water that's poured on the entire experience, right? I think as we read this text from chapter five, it's not hard to understand what is happening. What is hard to understand is why is this happening? Why is this upstart church that seems to be doing everything right all of a sudden have this account where two people drop dead because they don't give their entire offering to church? Well, to get to the answer to that question, I think we need to ask two questions. The two questions that I want you to focus on in the first two points on your notes sheet, if you're taking notes with us, or what is the sin that Ananias and Sapphira were sinning? Uh, I think it's easy for us to jump to conclusions about what the sin is without actually looking at what the text says the sin is. And then secondly, we have to ask the question, why such a harsh consequence for this sin? I think those are the questions that you would ask as well as you read this text. So um, let's start to work through those. First, let's ask the question, what is the sin? I think if you were to ask the average person who just reads through this text really quickly, what is the sin that Ananias and Sapphira struggled with? I think most people, or at least a good amount of them, would say greed. Right? They, would, they, they wanted some of the money from the sale of their property to, to keep back for themselves. They didn't want to give it all to church, and so their problem was greed. The problem is that's not what the text says the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is. You can start to see what the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is by how Peter talks to Ananias at the beginning of the text. When he confronts Ananias about the money that has come from the property, he asks this question, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What Peter is saying to Ananias is, Ananias, this was all your money from the beginning. You didn't have to give any of it to church. You could have sold that property, kept it all for yourself, and that would have been fine because you know what the truth is? God doesn't need your offerings. In fact, there is no absolute command of how much you're supposed to give to church. We're supposed to give out of the joy that the salvation that God offers us freely in Jesus Christ gives us, but as far as how much we give one way or the other, there's no absolute mandate. Peter says to him, look, this this shouldn't have been a problem, right? Like, you could have just told us that you only wanted to give some of the money to the church and you could have kept some of it and it would have been fine. The money was all at your disposal. You could do whatever you want with it. So the problem wasn't greed. Although maybe greed was behind it in some way, the problem that Peter identifies in Ananias' heart is not greed, it's deception. It's deception. We can see that in how he continues to talk to Ananias. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So the sin that Ananias and Sapphira struggled with was deception. Now, before we move a little bit farther into studying the concept of deception and talking about how it affected Ananias and Sapphira, I think we have to stop for a moment and think about the fact that when we come to this text, we do think it's about greed. Like I said, I think many people read this text and immediately think this is about money, this is about offerings, this is about giving to church, and frankly, a lot of pastors preach this text that way. I wonder if that approach to the text says something about us. Like, think of it this way. If you're a detective and you're going into the house of a suspect for a crime that you are investigating, and you ask the suspect, hey, do you mind if I go look in the basement? And they say, yeah, that's fine, go look in the basement, just don't look in the attic. Well, what are you gonna think as an investigator? I wasn't even talking about the attic. 
What are you hiding in the attic? What are you so self-conscious about in the attic? I think sometimes the same thing happens with us as we read this text. It's as if God would tell the story to us and he would say at the end, so what's this text about? And we would say, "Uh, greed. And he'd say, greed? This text isn't about greed. But the fact that you think it's about greed, that says something about you. I think many people come to this text and they are immediately self-conscious of something deep that's happening in them. And so we're going to study what the text is about, but I just wanted to identify that for you because I think some of us need to wrestle with that. What's going on with our relationship with God and our money? That that's how we read the text right away. So like I said, the sin that Ananias and Sapphira struggle with is deception, but it's not deception per se in just like telling a white lie. There's something far deeper that's going on. It really is hypocrisy. And the reason that we say it's hypocrisy is that really what Ananias and Sapphira are doing is not something evil. In fact, they're doing something really good. They're generously giving to the ministry of their church. What they're doing is they are being hypocritical about it. They're saying that they're giving a certain amount when in fact they are not actually giving that much. Let's just say for a moment they have been completely honest about the whole thing. Given part of the sale of the property to the church, that would have been great. And we would have said, praise God, thank you for the generosity of God's people. It would have been a great thing. But because they tried to make themselves look better than they actually were, they suffered the consequences. It was hypocrisy. And so what this text is ultimately about is hypocrisy in Jesus' church. Now, hypocrisy in Jesus' church uh, affects us in a number of different ways. And those three ways I have for you right here. It, It affects us practically, it affects us societally, communally, and it affects us spiritually. Let me show you how it does. First, it affects us practically. Uh, When hypocrisy exists in a community, when people are trying to make themselves to be something that they're not, it starts to break down the actual humanity of of the people involved. So there's interesting neuroscience that will say that uh, if you are willing to believe lies, if, if you're willing to go with the convenient truths, not the actual difficult truths, that it actually stunts the growth and development of your brain. Uh, to say it differently, your brain is kind of like your body. Like if you just sit on your couch all the time, your muscles are going to atrophy. The easy way out is not going to make you stronger. Well, if you're constantly doing that with your brain, you're taking the easy way out and not actually dealing with the difficult truths of yourselves or other people, it actually turns your brain into mush in a sense. It makes your brain atrophy. In a sense, you lose a certain set part of your humanity if you are being hypocritical. But it also starts to break down society, right? As we saw in the text that I read from Genesis 38, deception upon deception upon deception bred absolute disaster, right? There's a reason that all of us were super uncomfortable with that whole text, because it was a mess and we didn't want to be part of it. Deception, hypocrisy, being somebody who you were not, trying to be at least, is what got them into that trouble in the first place. But it still affects us today. Um, One of the the books that I recently read was a a book called Leaving Christianity, Changing Allegiances Since 1945 in Canada uh, by Brian Clark and um, I can't remember the first name of the second author, but his last name is McDonald. And it was essentially a statistical analysis of how church attendance and so on has, has changed since 1945 in Canada. But one of the things that they identified in this book was uh, that while the number of attendees to churches steadily declined since 1945, The amount of people who said that they went to church stayed pretty flat. You understand what they're saying? People are not going to church, or fewer are going to church, 
but they're still saying that they are. It's hypocrisy. And the downstream result of that attitude is that now Gen Z, who are the people who are in their teen years and into their early 20s, will say that the main reason that they don't want to be part of organized religion is because of hypocrisy. And they're right. They have watched their parents and their grandparents hypocritically say, we're Christians, we go to church, but then not live like it at all. Hypocrisy breaks down society. It breaks down the community of the church. But finally, it breaks down us spiritually. It breaks us down spiritually. And this one I think we have to dig a little bit deeper on because it leads us into the second thought of of why such a harsh punishment in this text on Ananias and Sapphira. See, hypocrisy is at its core essentially aligning yourself with Satan. Uh, Satan is a deceiver. In fact, the, the name that he has, the devil, is, a de- is the word that means deceiver. And you know that his first interaction with humanity in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 is one of deception, right? You will, nev- you will not die. Was God actually saying that? Are you sure? It's deception. Jesus will say later that, that Satan is speaking his native language when he lies, And so for us to live life of hypocrisy, to deceive, is actually to do exactly what what Satan does. But I think it even goes a step deeper. Because what is hypocrisy or what is deception? It is, frankly, trying to create an alternate reality in the minds of other people or in our own mind. There is the reality that we can all see, but if I start to try to deceive you, what I'm doing is using my words to create an alternate view of reality for you to have. Can you see what that's eerily similar to? The God who creates reality by his word. Who says, let there be light, and then there's light, and let there be plants and trees and animals, and and there are. Let there be man in our own image. He he does all of this by the power of his word, and what we are doing is following that temptation that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. You could be like God. We try to be. We try to create reality with our words, through our lies, through our deception. Hypocrisy is a problem spiritually because it makes us out to be God. And that, I think, leads us into this second question. This second question of why such a harsh punishment. Because what God sees in Ananias and Sapphira is not just somebody who tells a white lie about how much they give to church. It's not just somebody who's dealing with greed. It's somebody who is standing fundamentally against the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is who you are does not depend on you. Why would you try to posture to make yourself look better? The reason you need a savior is because you are an absolute sinful, corrupt disaster, and you're free to repent of that because Jesus has completely forgiven you for it. The moment I start to say, well, I need to look good, or at least better than most, or at least better than I did before, what am I doing? I'm standing against the gospel. I'm throwing away the gospel. I'm saying, it doesn't matter that Jesus thinks that I'm awesome because of his death on the cross. I need to make myself look better. Do you see how ridiculous this is? So why such a harsh punishment? At some point, it's because we're standing against the gospel when we live hypocritically. But let me take you a step deeper on this. This question, why such a harsh punishment, I think similar to the first question, identifies something else that is deep-seated and evil in every one of our hearts. If you were to ask somebody to fill in this blank, God blanks me. What do you think most people, even maybe non-Christians, would put in that blank? Love, right? God loves me. That's true enough. 
But that is the answer that Western people give. Modern Western people who are obsessed with the concept of love, that's the answer that they give. It's not necessarily the answer the Bible gives. Now, it's not, it's not that I'm saying that God doesn't love you. He absolutely loves you, but he never stops after those three words. He always continues and says, well, this is how I love you. I mean, if we put it into our own common language today, I can say I love pizza and I love my wife, and those are two very different things, right? How I treat those two things is indicative of how much I love them, right? So it's not just enough to say God loves me. We have to say, in what manner does God love me? And by the way, the scripture does exactly that. It says that God so loved the world that he gave. It says that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when we were dead in our transgressions. It says that the love that the Father has lavished on us is so that we should be called children of God. There's always something attached to this love that says this is what the love looks like. So then ask yourself the question, why do we stop at God loves me? I think it's because maybe for for some of us deep down, we don't want God to include the other stuff that he says. Because the other stuff that he says necessarily indicates that we need to be saved. That we're bad. That God has to love us and sacrifice for us. Or maybe to say it differently, who is the only person who deserves unconditional love? Love that stops after I love you? God does. Because God is in of his very nature the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything that we have and are is dependent on him. There's nothing that we can offer or do for him to show enough love. And so we just simply say we love him. But I think maybe deep down that's kind of how we want God to love us. Like just love us the way that we are. Just let us be. Just think that we're awesome. Just worship us. And I think that's why we're so offended by this harsh punishment. Because we say, well, that doesn't seem fair. That's not the God that I know. Well, it's the God of the Bible. It's the God who cares deeply about sin, so much so that he went to die for it, to sacrifice himself for it. So that not just can he say, I love you, but I love you in order to have mercy on you. See, we rather should say, than, rather than God loves me, we should say God shows mercy to me in his love. And if we can do that, then I think the answer to why such a harsh punishment starts to get answered. Why such a harsh punishment? Because that's absolutely what every single one of us, including me, deserves. It's not that harsh. It's appropriate. The amazing grace of God is that I don't get that kind of punishment. In fact, every single person in this room, if you're still breathing right now, God be praised, he has been merciful to you. Because every one of us, myself included, has shown this kind of hypocrisy that Ananias and Sapphira showed. But maybe to give you one more layer to this, I think there are, there's some reason to believe also that what God is doing in this text is he's setting an example. So if you look through the entire Bible, there are a number of places where God does something that, at least to our modern Western minds, seems a little bit out of character where he, he like lays down a really harsh punishment on somebody that we don't expect. You could think maybe of Lot's wife as she looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Or you can think of when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle and Uzzah grabs the Ark of the Covenant as it's starting to totter on its cart and he dies because he touches the Ark of the Covenant. And you can think to yourself, that seems a little bit harsh. Well, in every one of those situations, and there are more of them than just those two, 
there's a big change happening in how God is relating to his people. And in a sense, God is setting the standard and saying, here's how I feel about my standards for you, this generation. To give you a different way of thinking about this, uh, before I was the pastor here, I was a dormitory pastor and teacher at one of our synod's high schools. And uh, both from the teaching side and from the dormitory supervisor pastor side, I received advice that at the beginning of your year, you should be more strict than you are comfortable with. The reason being, you probably can't actually keep that level of strictness up throughout the whole year, and that's probably okay. But you want to start the year with that kind of strictness to show your students how much you care that they, are, that they uh, live up to the standards. Now, God is perfect. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't stop being who he is. So it's a little bit different, but the same principle is in place here. God is starting this new era of the church, right? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The church has now been given the Holy Spirit and the scriptures to preach to the world this message of the gospel. And God is saying, okay, in this generation, here's my standard. I'm not gonna kill everybody who's a hypocrite, but I want you to know how much I care about this. And so when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, let's look at them as a cautionary tale. That should lead us to repent of our own sins, repent of our own hypocrisy, and to start telling the truth about ourselves. In fact, that's the the last application that I want you to get. If you're taking notes with us, it's the fill in the blank at the bottom. Start telling the truth about yourself. You can. You can because you have the humility of knowing that nothing less than the death of the Son of God was enough to pay for your sins. And you have the freedom of knowing that the death of the Son of God for your sins was the full and complete payment for all of them. That your sin no longer clings to you. And therefore, you can be honest about yourself. Let's get a little bit more specific, though, about that. Get honest with your family. Even in marriages, which are supposed to be the most honest relationships that we have, husbands and wives, uh, wives deceive each other. We try to make ourselves look better than we are, or maybe put down the other person in order to make us look better. Stop that. Be honest about yourself. Say, I struggle with this. Right? I'm uncomfortable with this. I need Jesus' help with this. I need your patience with this. Rather than trying to seem like you have it all together, like you understand, you know, be willing to be honest about yourself. Do it with your kids. Remember those Gen Zers who are coming up and looking at their parents and grandparents and saying they're hypocritical? Let's not be that generation. The children who came up here for the children's message, I want them to grow up seeing a congregation who's telling the truth about themselves. We're here not because we're good people. We're here because we're bad people and we have a good savior. By the way, when we're talking about our community, let's tell the truth about ourselves in here. I'm really struggling with this teaching. I'm really struggling with this sin. Those things get solved in community with God's word being preached and prayers being said for one another. Start telling the truth about yourself. Maybe the last thing then to say on this as we think about telling the truth about ourselves, is to use the foil that, that this text uses, which is money. This text really isn't about money. It's not about greed, like I said. But it is a useful thing to help us press down on what Jesus is trying to teach us through this text. So let me do a test with you. Don't raise your hand, but I want you to think in your mind, do you agree with this statement? I cannot give any more to church than I am right now, financially. I don't know how many of you agree with that statement, but I would guess there's a decent amount of you who would say, yeah, I agree with that. I can't give any more than what I'm giving right now. 
Unless you are giving 100% of your income to church and have liquidated all of your assets and given them to church, that statement is necessarily false. You can. You absolutely can. You don't want to. And that's the point. It's not that God wants you to give more to church. That's not the point of this. The point is God saying, can you be honest about yourself? Can you be honest and say, I could give more, but I don't want to. I'm sinful. I'm selfish. I'm greedy. And the result is not that I want you to increase your offerings. That's between you and God. I don't care about that, really. I care that you're honest with yourself about the fact that you don't want to. And then play that out in a number of other scenarios. I don't want to be generous in community with other people in my church. Be honest about that. Pray to God about that. Say, God, I don't want to do this. I know you said this is good, but I don't want to. Can you send your Holy Spirit to help me want to? I don't want to raise my kids in the faith. It's too hard. I don't want to, God. Can you help me? Can you give me the strength to do it? See, at the base of this text, God is trying to break you down to say, this isn't actually about me. In fact, I am the problem here, but Jesus is the solution. And to the extent to which I look at myself and think that this is about me and how good I am or how good I look or how much I give or how much I serve or how nice I am to people or how generous I am with my family or how good of a parent, brother, sister, mother, whatever I am, I am wrong. But to the extent to which I look at the cross and say, that is how good I am, then I'm right. Or let this be the last statement. Um, If someone asks you the question, are you a Christian? The right answer is not yes. The right answer is, Jesus says I am. Everything about my life just testifies to the opposite. I'm not generous with my neighbor. I'm not kind to my family. I'm not faithful with my word, with the study of the word. And and yet Jesus says I'm a Christian. To the extent to which I look at myself and my faith and my action, I will be wrong. But to the extent to which I look at what Jesus has said about me through the cross and the empty tomb, I will be right. So give up the hypocrisy. Tell the truth about yourself and lean completely into the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the freedom to tell the truth about ourselves. We need it. Press us into it. Encourage us with brothers and sisters in the faith and the scriptures to do so. Help us to lean fully on you and not on ourselves. To not build ourselves up to be something that we're not. To admit that we are sinful. And then look forward to the resurrection that you are offering us that we do not deserve, but you still give us freely. Amen.